Welcome to the RSP Cast Scout Talk. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me as always is Russ Landy. And Russ, we've got the Senior Bowl. We've got the Super Bowl heading on. You know, we've got free agency. We have retirements. We've got a whole load of things going on right now. And I think probably the one that we should just begin with is that, you know, Tom Brady retired this morning. Um, or at least it sounds like this is for good, um, at least for now. I think we were both kind of surprised. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, when I heard it, I thought it was uh, sort of like an, uh, it was an entertainment person actually saying it on the radio. And I thought, oh, maybe they just don't know really because they're in entertainment and they're thinking of last year. It was one year ago. Um, so when I heard it was her talking and I was like, oh, probably not. But then she said, oh, here's the audio. And he said, you know, a year ago I said this and now I'm saying it for sure. And I was like, oh, all right, this is pretty much it. And I got to believe knowing him. I'd be stunned if he decided to come back. It would, it would knock my socks off at this point. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, because I thought, I, I know you mentioned before the show that you thought he'd play another couple of years. I I thought he would play another couple of years. I thought he would be a dead ringer in Oakland, like just, or excuse me, in Las Vegas, like everyone else who thought the McDaniels fit, you know, car being that kind of shoved out the door as a possibility you know, yep. would be, it would just be like, yeah, give him an offensive line, let him go out the right way. But then, you know, I haven't kept up with the day-to-day -day of what happened with his personal relationships, but it certainly sounded like that, you know, that there, I have to think that that would be, have been a big factor that he decided to go ahead and play, that that, that maybe have been a cause of some strife at, at home. And maybe he's looking back on this on this season and looking back on, what he has the opportunity to do with the rest of his life and the people that matter to him and decided that it's been a great career and let's just let's just hang it up i think that's part of it i also wonder if part of it is he went to tampa bruce Arians was the coach it went great they won they changed the coach now with a year where things went sideways they fired about five coaches and his debate's got to be do i want to be here as we try to sort of fix this do I want to go somewhere else where I got to start from scratch again and learn, not just learn a new offense, but try to implement sort of the way I believe we do things, the culture and all that? Or have I done enough to say, you know what? I have this Fox TV deal sitting here waiting for me. Let me just go do that and I can move on and sort of do my thing. And I think that's what it is. I almost wonder if it's like there's so many hoops he would have had to have jumped through. And he is definitely a guy who it seems like enjoys the routine like he likes things to be the same so he can build his routine i think that's part of why he stayed in new england so long even though he may have had issues with a number of things he liked the fact that he knew his routine i think that's part of it um i think the most interesting part of this whole thing is i wonder if he's going to be good or bad on air i have a feeling it's going to be poor i think okay. he's not going to be very good um that's just a guess i don't know now, mind you, I think almost all of them are bad. I think very <laughs> few are worth listening to. Okay. Um, but I just wonder how he'll be, because he definitely comes across where with everything being regimented and planned, how is he going to be when things are not according to his plan and schedule in a game? Yeah. Is he going to feel comfortable sort of saying something he may not have planned for? And is he going to feel, feel comfortable talking about things that are sort of okay to talk about, but that he was told in a setting that he may not think it is because of all the time in New England with the we never share anything. Yeah. I just wonder how that's going to work out. Yeah, I think that's a those are some great points with that. And he is a, you know, he is a very methodical. He was a very methodical player in terms of his Deep approach. Baker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and so it's one of those situations that. You, you know, you, he made things that looked, he made, he was so well planned with things that he made things that maybe were very scripted or like he could do some things that were unscripted, but it was only because he scripted the hell out of so many things that it was like, he could even say, I'm going to plan, I'm going to plan these five or six improvisational type of things like if this happens these are the these are the five things exactly. in my tool bag i've worked if on then, to right death. yeah he had like nine if thens for every snap and for him it probably made him comfortable yeah but that's not 
but that's you know then you got the opposite side of the coin you got someone like brett Favre who probably didn't know what a nif then was you know but was didn't want to know didn't want to know you know but it was fine you know but it i i think that you know more than anything i mean when i think about him retiring from a craft standpoint uh, of the position there, there was really no one better when you think about the if then of pre-snap or late pre-snap identification of what defenses were doing or trying to hide and the early post-snap identification of of those things as well like or confirmation of it and then being able to have the solution and then on top of that was just his pocket management he had unbelievable pocket management for a guy who was not mobile and part of that was that and i think there's a connection the more i i, I delve into this stuff but it's a part of it is that he had great footwork he was a boxer at michigan he was on the boxing team someone who you know it doesn't necessarily mean that boxing taught him great footwork in the pocket though i would think there's a pretty good connection that it, there yep. was but the fact that he became he was part of a boxing team in college and had great footwork in the pocket kind of tells you that he could he could implement that across sports you, you know and that and you know if there were two things about his game that i value and and think his variance was very instructive it was it was those two things it was the mental the conceptual side of late pre-snap early post-snap and just the pocket management yep i, I the thing that and it ties in with the pre-snap post-snap thing you're talking about is to me i think the most unique thing about i mean the many unique things i mean he's one of a kind as a as a quarterback but with a lot of quarterbacks, you can point to that was a mental mistake that led to an interception. That was a physical mistake. That uh, With Brady, it was almost always when he was intercepted, it was due to physically not being able to make the throw or a guy making a tremendous play because he rarely threw to the wrong spot and he rarely forced balls that he didn't have to. And that, to me, I know early on when I remember him starting when he got into the lineup in the next few years after that, I was constantly amazed by the fact that <clears throat> if it got later in the day or later in the game, you knew if his team had the ball and they were up, there was virtually no chance the ball was getting turned over. Yeah. And, and that was something that was impressive because a lot of other teams you think, okay, if we blitz him from here, we do this, make him uncomfortable. It was really hard to make him uncomfortable because he knew what was coming. And also, we've talked about this a bunch, and I, I've had so many people say, Are you, is that really legitimate? But the, the ability or the, the whatever we want to call it, to throw it away. And how it is, in my opinion, there's something innate that as you're growing up and developing as a quarterback, that it's either there or not by the time you get to the NFL most of the time. He had an ability to understand sooner than most, hey, it, we got to get rid of the ball. Just throw it over the tight end, or you know what? Falk is flashing out to the left. I don't want him to catch it, so I'm going to put it three feet over his head. But he seemed to learn that faster than most quarterbacks. Yeah. And he rarely put balls. I was just amazed, especially because I obviously saw him in the playoffs. We all did for many years. But really observing him when he played the Chargers those years when the Chargers were like 14-2 and two and they had Marty Schottenheimer. And the Chargers would scrape and claw and find a way to keep it close. But they could never win because Brady would never, ever make a mistake. Yeah. And that, to me, even the one that he made, that one where he got picked with like four minutes left and the Chargers fumbled that interception. But that was like the only mistake I ever remember him seeing him make in key spots. And that, to me, is one of the things that goes down in history with him is his ability to avoid mistakes. And that was what changed my quarterback evaluation, that charting system, because when my system rated him as a third rounder, Seven, eight years later, I said, all right, what would have made him a better player coming out? And it really was the ability to avoid errors. And that's something I, I think in today's NFL has grown even bigger and bigger. And he's just unique. He's, he's a rare dog like that. He doesn't put the ball in bad spots. Yeah, it's a, and it's such a fantastic point because there are so many players who, because they had, have always had few limitations physically to their game they've been enabled to thinking well i've got to carry the team physically i've got to try and make this throw 
I got to be Matthew Stafford and try and, you know, do the precursor of what Patrick Mahomes does, um, but on a level that's, you know, in a way that can be immature. Um, and I think a lot of players have to go through that. The longer they hold on to the ball, I, I find myself writing this in the scouting reports for the past five or six years is the longer they hold on to the ball, the more likely they're, they are to make an error um, because they feel compelled too invested in having a huge positive outcome to a play. If they're like, listen, I've run around for four or five seconds. I better have a huge play out of this as opposed to throwing it away when throwing it away might've been the best thing they could have done. Um, and you know, one of the things I wonder because I, and I agree firstly a thousand percent with that, but I wonder if some of this was, he had this coming out of high school and I wonder if when he gets to Michigan and who's there, but possibly at the time, the most hyped quarterback prospect in 20 years and drew Henson, who clearly physically, they weren't even in the same ballpark. I mean, Henson yeah. was faster, stronger, bigger arm, the whole nine yards. I wonder if he would see Henson make plays in practice. And then his rep would come up, see the same look, make the throw, and he would get picked. Yeah. And I wonder if seeing that, and I'm not saying it happened, but I'm just wondering if things like that made him realize, hey, it ain't all about the physical. Make the right decision over and over and over to be successful. And I'm wondering if some of Henson's struggles helped him realize, you know what, it's about above the shoulders, not below the shoulders. Yeah, and I think it's a great point because it's most likely the case because if he were a different, had a different mindset, it's very likely that he might have just given up. He might have, yep. he was competing with Henson and just thought, how am I going to compete with him? Because it was the equivalent of saying, oh, I just got, I just, I'm on the same team as Trevor Lawrence or I'm on the same team as um, Andrew Luck. And, and what am I going to do now? Should I transfer? Or I, I'm not transferring. Who's going to give me a yeah. scholarship? I've barely even played. You know, it wasn't back then. Isn't right now where like you can transfer at the drop of a dime if you're a reasonably high, yeah. you know, highly recruited guy. And it wasn't like Brady was a highly recruited guy. I don't no. think so. So, yeah, I think that was a terrific point about that. And, and you just, I, I would love to know just in addition to what had him, you know, was there anything else about him? Because you obviously, you know, it was hyped a lot during that time. I remember reading about your work, even though you've always kind of downplayed it, that you're like, well, listen, I didn't give him a first round grade. So it wasn't like, you know, but there were a lot of people that didn't have him as nearly as a high of a grade as you did. So what was it about Brady that stood out to you? You know, I think it was the one thing you thought about, like the poise, the comfort level. Um, not many college quarterbacks are relaxed. Um, and I thought, like you talked about, he's not a great athlete, but he's a great pocket athlete. And that showed up in college. He, he rarely would get sacked by expected. Now, he would get sacked at times because he didn't always feel it or things would happen. And, and again, he didn't miss. He was very accurate in college, and he never put the ball into risky spots. Yeah. Um, I did. I will say the big thing to me, and part of the reason and in my report I said it, is I think this guy will be a solid starter but I question his ability to make all the throws. I didn't see a big arm in college. I saw a, a just good enough to make it, but you're going to struggle on like the far side out and the deep digs and stuff. And clearly he worked on just the, the way he would torque and and sort of transfer his power into his arm and get more zip on it. And he became more deliberate. And when I say deliberate, I don't mean reading it like easier for the defender, but deliberate in terms of everything he did was efficient, deliberate to get the most power and accuracy behind his intermediate and deep throws. And that was one thing I didn't, I wasn't sure he could do. And clearly he did it because he had, he had a better arm than people give him credit for once he sort of established himself and had been in the league a few years. Yeah, no, those are great points. And it's funny. One of the things that I remember about him too was that there's a lot of commentary in New England, especially once he was really established in his career, that he really would take risks in practice. And that's something that, I often hear with quarterbacks that that's not always the case. And oftentimes you, I, I, and this is a good question for you is about practice in general, because 
it seems to me that practice now becomes a performance in many respects, especially with the Senior Bowl. We're about to see some of talk about that a little bit. Is that where now media is watching? They're all critiquing. They all are like entertainment reviewers out there, you know, talking about how good or bad the practice was, and then then therefore concluding whether the guy is good or not. And especially when it's a young quarterback in training camp who's already hyper conscious about making mistakes. And Brady, on the other hand would literally talk about, well, there's certain looks in the red zone or certain types of, you know, coverages that I want to see if I can target the leverage this way or I can make the, this type of a throw. And I do that a number of times and yeah, I'm going to get picked off or I'm going to, it's not going to work, but I want to know so that that way I can incorporate that into my plan. And I'm thinking, well, that's what practice should be all about because practice is really about trying to do the things that you can't do um, in terms of practice for growth. Now, practice yeah. for efficiency, practice for, um, you know, everyone getting on the same page and doing things as scripted, that I understand you want to minimize mistakes as much as possible and not try to do things you can't do. But there is a point where there's a place for that, and I think a lot of quarterbacks miss that. There's no doubt, and I can tell you that it's hard because coaches obviously have this belief of we're out there taking reps. I want him to do it the way we're going to do it. And they will get upset when there are picks. And I mean, trust me, I'm there. I've been there. This is my 10th year in the CFL, seven years in the NFL, where you go. And I remember the Browns who do this. You watch training camp practice out on the field. Then as a scouting staff, we go in and we watch it two or three times again. And it's like, we're watching it. And I get that we're seeing decisions made by certain players, but, Sometimes you got to look at it and say, okay, let's remember, it is practice. Certain guys have a different mentality and a different way of doing things. And a perfect example, in Montreal, um, I don't know if it was this year or a year. Yeah, it was this year. We went into training camp with two young kids as backup, sort of competing for the job. Every day in practice, this one quarterback, and this tell this is the perfect example of my story. One quarterback was clearly better than this kid, Davis Alexander, out of Portland State. Every day in practice, he was a level above. And we literally would sit in meetings saying, yeah, this Alexander, he, he's, that'll be an easy cut. Our two preseason games, he looked like a starting CFL quarterback, Davis Alexander, because the things he did in practice that frustrated you where he would take a gamble and do things, he didn't do those in the games. He was very efficient, worked very well within the pocket, was decisive, was consistently throwing accurately. Now, given two fourth quarter performances, probably a total of 10 throws is not what you want to build everything on, but you saw a different player in the game. And I'm not, and I never spoke to him about it. So I don't know if during practice, he has the mentality of, I'm just going to let it rip or, Hey, he just may be a bad practice player. Yeah. But whatever it is, you have to be very cautious. If you have a guy that in practice is bad, that you had very good write-ups on from his game film. And then you're automatically going to dump him because of what he does in two or three weeks of practice. That to me is the risk you run because a lot of decisions are made on how a guy does in practice. And most practices now after the first week of training camp are shells. They're not even wearing full, full gear. Yeah. And you're making decisions on, Hey, this is a contact violent collision sport. There has to be something about being in games. Hits are coming. Bodies are flying. How do you do when that's going on? And yeah, that to me, I'm not saying you want your quarterback to always be taking gambles, but I want my quarterback to be not always saying I'm going to do it exactly as it's structured in practice because I want him to feel comfortable saying, hey, you know what? I know this is what we're called, what's called, and I know this is the front that they're showing, but I think that linebacker is misaligned by two feet. I want to try to do this as opposed to, well, the play calls for me to go over here. And when you when a quarterback is doing that, it tells me they're thinking, they're thinking ahead, they're thinking of what could happen in a game and saying, okay, then this is an opportunity. Whereas if they follow everything to the script, sometimes you wonder, okay, what is going to happen? And this is where Brady was great, which is what is going to happen when I drop back if my pre-snap read and my initial post-snap read are both completely wrong? Yeah. What if everything I thought was wrong, what happens? Well, the guy who is so programmed may struggle, whereas Brady had a unique ability to say, oh, I'm wrong, and he wouldn't panic. He would either figure it out or he'd say, you know what, Grandma, here's a football in the stands for you. Yeah. And 
I think that is something you have to be so cautious. And you mentioned the senior ball. I mean, those all-star games, they're amazing. I mean, the ability to interview these kids, watch them interact with the coaches is great. But those practices can be so deceiving. And especially what's the most hype part of any practice at senior bowl that they post the videos of is the one-on-ones, especially in the trenches. And anybody who follows this knows every defensive player has like a 10,000% chance better of whipping the O-line. I mean, it's just the odds are enormous in the defense's favor. And people kill these offensive lines. Oh, he's good. He's terrible. It's like, wait, hold on now. Yeah. How often do you see a guy go one-on-one where the guard won't even touch him yes. if he's running right by the guard? Right. It's like, you see this, it's like, and I get it. There's some value in it, especially to see the mental makeup of the offensive lineman because they're going to get whipped. How do they recover and yeah. things like that? But yeah, all-star games to me, and, and, and I'm glad we sort of transitioned into that from that. To me, all-star games have enormous value, but they can also be enormous in terms of the risk if you overvalue them. Yes, because, I mean, I think about, you know, I remember uh, Ryan Riddle talking about his senior bowl experience and saying, I really didn't, he, he, I remember him telling me, he goes, I didn't really take it that seriously. He goes, I thought it was kind of more of an exhibition with practice. I had been injured, so I was playing kind of banged up. And he was the single season sack holder record, record holder at Cal. Yeah. In, at Cal, you know, and he was playing with Marshawn and, and Aaron Rodgers. So, I mean, he was a, you know, and he was a player. He said that I, I took chances as a player, you know, it was kind of like I knew when and where to call my spots and, 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 and do things on that level. He said, but I really didn't think it was that. I, I really didn't take it that level of serious, take it that seriously. Um, and, you know, and it said, wasn't, he wasn't being slack, but he just was like, I didn't think I had to compete for my life to like earn my draft capital doing this. And he said, as a result, yeah, my draft capital dropped significantly, um, you know, from that. And he said, but the, it's a, it's a, it's become a circus when we it's watch a total this circus. There's no question. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you go to the scene, bro, and you, you, when you, when you think about it, when you look at Ryan Riddle, I always think to me, there are a lot of examples, but the most recent one, is I remember staying for the game, which is not common. A lot of time you leave after the third day of practice. And all of a sudden I stay for the game and who wins defensive player of the game is Michael Sam. And then we end up getting him in Montreal. And this is a guy who literally washed out of the NFL pretty quickly for reasons I don't think were related to his physical play. And then he couldn't even play in the CFL. He just couldn't, it wouldn't come around for him. So I always look back and think, man, you have to be so cautious because And don't get me wrong, there's value. I'm not saying forget the senior bowl, throw it out. But there are players like Michael Sam, like um, you probably remember Alfonso Smith, the cornerback out of Wake Forest, Andre uh, Caldwell, the receiver who went in the second round to Denver. He had one of the best weeks I've ever seen down there. Um, Jay Cutler was unbelievable in his time at the senior bowl. Not that he wasn't a good quarterback in the NFL, but he never became the player I think people had hoped he would become. Yeah. and other people like Richard Sherman were awful at the senior bowl. So, and I'm not trying to kill Richard Sherman. He's one of the best corners I've ever seen in the NFL. And I gave him a very big grade coming out of college. But he was a late add to the senior bowl. Missed the, I think he came in on Tuesday morning. And he just looked lost all week and got beat a lot. There is value there in many aspects, even for guys who struggle or guys who kill it. Because how do they react when things go sideways? How do they react when they're not in their comfort zone? A lot of these guys, and we see it in the spring, they don't want to work out at the combine. They want to work out at Michigan State. That's where they've been for four years. They want to be in a comfortable spot. Well, now you're in Mobile. Your coaching staff isn't there. Meeting rooms are different. People that are coaching you are different. Everything is different. It's a great chance for us as evaluators to just get a feel for how you deal with things that aren't comfortable because that's important. And also, what about that kid that you bring up from Minot State? who literally has been the best player on the field for four straight years. When he walks around campus, everybody's like, oh, look, that's Joe Joe Alexander, the greatest player in Minot State history. He shows up there. He's not bigger than anybody. He's the same size that everybody is at his position. How does he handle that? Does he go into a shell? Or does he come in there with the same confidence like, hey, whether it's Minot or Alabama, I got invited. I deserve to be here, and it's time for me to go kick some people's butt. That's how that kid from uh, Allie Marpet, 
Yeah. He went down to the senior bowl. And was he dominant? Was he the best lineman? I don't know if he was the best lineman, but he was good. And when yeah. you come from a low-level program and you come there and it's not too much for you, it's a big sign of like, hey, it's not too big for this kid. He yeah. understands. He can handle it. So there's a lot of benefits to it, but you just have to be so cautious. Like we talked about the one-on-one. I mean, DBs have virtually, they're getting killed. And especially the fact that safeties get thrown in there, sometimes covering receivers because of the way that the numbers work out. When the I mean, asking a safety yeah. who might be, I don't know, 215, 218, to come down and cover a 5'9", 180-pound little scat receiver in the slot, it's unfair. Yeah. So there's a lot of things at these games you have to be really cautious about. Accuracy. I mean, these quarterbacks, most of them have never thrown to these receiver bef- receivers before. The calls, even though it's a very basic offense they're installing, there's still calls different than what most of them have done in college. So when you see guys just blatantly missing guys, you got to take a deep breath and say, okay, are they missing throwing to the right spot or are they just missing that guy because he's used to a bigger, slower guy? Or he's used to Mr. Dynamic, and he's got a big 6'4", 230-pound guy running a 4'6", going to catch it, as opposed to a 4'4". So yeah. you've got to be so cautious with so many of the things you see there to not crush kids or prop kids up so high just based on three days of practice. Without a doubt, because some of the things I remember, I mean, when you bring up the the small jitterbug receivers who, who like, get two-way goes against – um, safeties in the middle of the field or yeah, against cornerbacks, even even good cornerbacks. When you have a two-way go, like you said, it's weighted a thousand percent for the receiver. Andy Isabella was a great example of a guy. He and Braxton Miller both were guys yep. that I remember hearing draft media just going on and on about and how they won practice and how they were great all week. And you're thinking, yeah, but these are mo- the moves they're making aren't efficient. Like you're not yeah. going to run them in the NFL. By the time they finish their third move, before exactly. they even reach the top of their stem, the ball's already out, and they haven't even gotten to the top of their stem. And people yep. didn't think about that. Or a guy like Nick Vanette. I remember Nick Vanette, and people were living the the media was living Gronk comparisons with him. And it was, and I remember watching the first practice and thinking, okay, first practice, he's beating everybody. He's getting, he's catching everything. He's, and I'm going, but I wrote down, not a single rep did anyone make contact with him. No one jammed him. No one made any contact with him during his stem. No one made any contact after his break. So next day of practice, he gets jammed on pretty much every release and draw. And even though he gets open, he dropped every ball that he, somebody contacted him before the break and i thought there you go okay yep. that's a that's the kind of point that you look at but meanwhile you look at guys like you knew you looked at him on tape and go nobody's talking about them i remember legarrett blunt after he hit the boise state player they were you know i almost want to say they were still punishing him for that um so they put him at fullback um, and I get it. He's six two. He's kind of a slower guy, but he's extremely quick with Bettis like feet, you know, yep. who with great bend. And they would occasionally give him a rep and he would find the right hole and he would be gone. And like I remember like Cecil Lammy and I we'd go to the All Star Games together. He's down there in Mobile right now. And I remember we were talking about Blunt before the practice and going their new using was a fullback. We just kind of looked at each other and then he'd, he'd break one open and we'd look at each other and laugh and just go, yep, no one's going to talk about this guy. And it's the same thing. It's just the, you have to understand that there, and that's also what drills can really have value. And, and I think that there are certain drills that can do that, but you really have to isolate it on a level to say, what am I looking for specifically it's not that I'm looking for anything good. If you're looking yep. for anything good, you're going to find everything yes. that can be good and very little Nothing, that's going to have yeah. value. But if you, and the same thing with everything bad, if you're looking for everything bad. But like, I remember watching Cooper Cup and Debo Samuel. And a great example is that when they did the press release drill, and they said, you know, we're not just doing two-way goes here. We're not just putting them on a boundary. We're going to put cones on either side. And we're going to say, don't veer outside the cone. Yep. And you need to get past here. How are you going to do? And I remember Debo, like, 
couldn't get past. And and like and I thought, well, that makes sense because he watches tape, and he was he wasn't very good at that. Whereas Cooper Cup put on the best performance I ever saw of anybody doing doing press. And it's also what do you see about these players that maybe what they did in the past, but they're being they're being branded in a different way. Yep, so, or asked to do something different at these events. Yeah, that's right. So like um, Marvin Jones, the the Cal, former Cal receiver, before Keenan Allen got there, he was their deep threat. After Keenan Allen got there, he was their possession receiver. He shows up with a good class of cornerbacks, and they put him outside, and no one could cover him deep. He was beating them all deep. Everybody, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and he was, you know, he was like a fifth, sixth round guy with the Bengals. But I mean, he's wrapping up a fantastic career relative to what people thought of him. Um, yep, and certainly has shown that he can be a big time deep threat. But he's he could play. He played every position, you know, and then and so I think that things like that are valuable to to do. But you've got to isolate what it is you're looking for or looking at there. And that's can, that's the difficult part is understanding which drills are really going to factor towards what it is that you want to see. And and I would recommend to anybody if you're really seriously trying to, like, get something out of the senior bowl from practices, um, the best thing you can do is probably go back and watch the tape of those practices and spend a lot of time on it, but make sure that the the things you're looking for are isolated to like smaller details and not just overall, because if you do that, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna inflate no or deflate unbelievably so. I would say the other thing that's interesting, and I think this is something that the media just doesn't know how a lot of NFL teams do it. Not all NFL teams, but a lot of them. I mean, the senior execs, they're going to watch everything. But in general, a lot of teams will assign a scout, hey, you're a linebacker guy this week. And when you watch the linebackers, all we want is day by day, each day I want you to grade their athletic ability, their coach ability. I don't really care if they win one-on-ones, lose I want to know athletic ability, coach ability. Because in the end, a lot of teams only want a little summary. Hey, he was a great athlete all week, or he was limited. And the reason you do that is it's sort of a cross-check. If you have a guy that three of your scouts or your scout and your cross-checker and your director have all said, hey, this guy's a plus, he's a six, five or a seven athlete. And at the senior bowl, your other scout looks at them and he said, you say, no, this guy was like the, the, the second worst linebacker in terms of athleticism, look stiff, look this. That means, all right, as a group, we got to figure him out. We got to make sure we have this athletic ability graded correctly so that we can appropriately hammer this down and get get it right. And then the coachability part of it is a big thing you try to get a feel for because you want to see, does a kid get better day by day? Does he listen to the coaches? And he doesn't have to get dramatically better, but if he goes out there day one and the coach is harping on three things that he improves on, even if he doesn't get them perfect, do you at least see him trying to incorporate what the coach is bringing up? And when you see that, at least tells you, hey, he's thinking about what was told to him Monday so that when he comes back Tuesday, and I especially love it when you watch a position player and after his rep, the coach says, hey, you screwed up this, good, da-da-da. And so when the other guys are getting reps and you like to see him walk off like five or six feet and he starts repping what the coach was teaching, that tells you, you know what, at least in terms of trying to get it right and work ethic, this probably is a kid is a keeper. Yeah. Because he's willing to take immediately what that guy's saying, and he's going to go try and work on it right now. And those little things often don't get noticed because the coachability to hearing him talk to and then them doing something on the sideline isn't what they're focused Everybody's watching what's on the field. No one's watching little things on the side and the interactions between the coaches and the players between plays. And that's a big part of, to me at least, what I always got from the senior bowl was I get a feel for what this kid's like and also, you could get a feel, whether it's Senior Bowl or East West, for me as a CFL scout is, is this the type of kid who he may think the CFL or the Arena League is not for him? Like, he, he's NFL or bust. Like, it's either I'm going to be a star in the NFL or I'm going to be out of football. So, and you also get a chance, and this is something else that no one really talks about, all these kids we all know were stars, or at least very good players at their school. 
how does it go? And most of them haven't really played teams unless they're returners since their freshman or sophomore year. They get there and they're told, all right, you're, you're L4 in kickoff coverage. You're, you're the left guard on punt. And do they give the effort? Do they? And I'm not saying they have to be great, but do they at least try? Sometimes you see guys get thrown out there and they, the, the ball's kicked off and they're jogging down the field, not even caring. Their lane is open, not because they left the lane, but because guys are 15 yards ahead of them and they're just lollygagging down the field. The guy just runs. I mean, there are certain things you see, and it's not so much big plays or big productive beats in one-on-one or catches, but just certain things that are indicators that, ooh, this kid may not take it seriously if he ain't the guy. There's this a, kid's not going to earn a living as a backup. There's some certainly maturity things I remember, and I think this is the difference between being, like, say, a football writer or a fantasy analyst and someone who's actually seriously trying to scout the game is I remember, like, O.J. Howard. Remember watching O.J. Howard? Oh, yeah. Everybody's like, best pro- tight end prospect in a while, freakish speed, you know, great size, great hands, and, and, you know, can make some really dynamic plays. And watch him, and I remember watching him on tape and being somewhat confused because I thought there are a lot of, like, just unforced errors in his game. Just a lot of like the best way I can put it is dumb errors, like just things that focused issues or just not really concentrating. And then you would, and then watching him in practice. Now the the football the football writer or fantasy analyst, I can totally hear because I've heard it in my head. Is I remember seeing him drop some passes during the week, and they were just like egregiously bad plays. Like he just did. He was not focused and the coach literally chewing him out on the field at the senior bowl and just shaking his head and just, and I remember the effect of the way he was chewing him out was essentially like, you're too good to be doing this. And like, and then just disgusted with him kind of like thinking there are so many kids who would want to be in the place you're in and you, and you have so much more ability than them. And you're just you're making worse mistakes than they are. That was the that was essentially yeah. what I got from it. And I remember thinking, you know, five six years, you know, now five six years later, whenever it, whatever it's been, you know, the fantasy analyst in me wants to go, you know, I I remember writing about that, but I go, you know, I wish I made a bigger deal out of that. But the the scout in me is like, first of all, you don't you don't get to interview him. What this really was about was. What is it, you know, I see this with him. What would I need to know? What do I need to ask? Who do I need to talk to that will help confirm what I'm starting to see here, which is an unbelievably gifted guy whose maturity light with the football game of football has just not come on or it flickers. Is there a way that we can flick that box and the light will stay on? Or, and could we get some tape and glue that switch on? Or is this one of these things where he just doesn't love football enough and he's just always been told he's great at it and he is great at it, but when it comes to like concentrating an effort, it's just not going to be there and we don't need to take the risk on a guy like this. Well, and, and I'll give you a quote that uh, I, I think I mentioned him a number of times on our podcast, Charlie Army, the guy who fired me at the Rams, but I learned yeah. so much from Charlie one of the things he always pointed to is he said he would always say, and I'm not going to have the verbiage exactly right, but he would always say, hey, let's remember, being an NFL player is like every other job in that there's a certain percentage that don't like being here. Yeah. They're here because they happen to have the physical tools and they've been told their whole life they should be a pro football player. And, they're, and they realize I can make a lot of money, but they don't enjoy it. Yeah. So they don't put in the time. They don't listen to the coaches. They just go through the motions. And he said, some of these people are going to be first-round picks because they're so gifted and so dominant in college because they don't need to do the other things to be dominant. And he goes, those are the guys that they get in the NFL. You realize, wow, it doesn't matter to them. And it's not a bad thing. He was like, I'm not trying to rip them. He goes, a lot of people don't love their jobs. How do you expect them to be great if they don't enjoy going to work every day? And he goes, there's going to be players on the team that you shake your head at. And he goes, it's not that they're not – consciously trying to do anything wrong they're just not enjoying being here yeah and that's a hard thing to figure out but you do occasionally come across a kid you hear from the coaches in college yeah we don't think it's this is his deal he's only doing this because he's always been the best his family's been pushing him 
we don't even think he likes football. And when you hear that, you go, oh, my God, you don't think he likes football? You don't think he would do this if he was if he could? I remember a school telling me once, if this kid was smarter and could go earn a real living, they said, I don't think he would have ever played ball at our school. Yeah. And I was like, wow. okay, yeah. if I hear that, that's petrifying because that means, okay, so his first year or two in the league, he, he earns a million bucks. Adios. Yeah. He's going to go do something else because clearly he doesn't love it. Yeah, let so, some let somebody else take that risk, and it's a. But that's the weirdest thing because it's the type of risk that I can imagine that as a staff you say too risky, and then you get an owner or a GM or someone else who's like the pressure of us not taking this kid is higher from the perception scale than us actually taking the risk to get to get him. You, well, you there's know? that, and I'll throw in the other thing, and this is something we've talked about a bunch is. It, it, at their core, all coach, well, not all, but 90% of coaches are teachers. Yeah. And it, and it's, and I, at least in my lifetime, there are very few people who I've met that are actual teachers that don't believe in their deepest parts of their heart that they can get through to every kid. Like if you give them enough time and resources, they'll get through to them. Well, coaches believe that. Coaches believe, hey, just get me the kid. I'll find a way. And there was a famous quote, a buddy of mine worked for uh, Mike Shanahan. Um, he was a scout for him. And Shanahan used to say on the, they would, their, their draft board would be, would be predicated basically on highlight clips of the 25 to 30 best plays of their final year of college. He didn't want any bad plays, just the best plays. And my buddy, who has since passed away, Greg Miller, asked him once, like, the reason for this. And he said, well, if he does it once, I can get him to do it all the time. And there's nothing negative to that. That's sort of a beautiful thing to have that belief that you can teach them. But that also is the risk of, hey, you see players that are innately gifted, but that don't have the passion or maybe the ability to do it consistently. You're going to take that risk because you as a coach or as a staff believe you can change them. It's, and it's a constant debate. That's yeah. what coaching, scouting, the whole cauldron of all of us thrown in one big sort of bold together trying to figure out players that's what you run into sometimes it's fascinating because i find that when i watch players i mean i'm very um methodical with all of the things that i look at you know on on film i'm looking through so many different criteria points but once i'm done once i've watched all that i go to youtube and i literally find a five three to five ten minute highlight package whatever one that they have where you know it's going to have their very best plays, and I and I watch it, and yeah. I and I and I watch it for a number of reasons. One is that is that same thing is the idea of like what is it that he could do if everything works out right for him in the NFL? Like what is it that and can I reconcile some of these things and say well that thing he did he's never doing in the NFL like that was that was a one off situation probably. These things he could probably consistently do if he addresses these things, you know, this issue yep. here. Um, or, and then occasionally, I haven't seen him do any of these things. Like there's five things that I haven't seen him do and I'm going, I bet if I put on his highlight clip, I'll get to finally see him run in the open field. Can he actually make someone miss? Can he yep. actually, and, and that helps too because there's especially like I'm watching tight ends a lot this week, you know, and there's some tight ends I've looked at and I go, there's all straight liners. They're either running through people. Um, there's not really much there in terms of what they do in the open field. Let me find, let me find their best plays. And I, and I can, and I can go look in other facets too. I have other means to look at every throw and every catch, but I want to see right away. What do, what does the public think the best plays are? Because oftentimes yep. they're going to find them, and I'll put them up and just say, "Okay, let's see, let's see what those things, let's see what is his best." And if his best is like, "Yeah, that's a that's a contributor in the NFL, but that's not a high end starter," um, you, you know, that's a, you know, it's pretty. You know, I'm glad he hurdled that guy, but he can't make anybody miss. He he just basically bullies people with his size as a blocker but he doesn't have a lot of nuance to being able to set people up and you know all 67 270 of him's probably going to get knocked down as behind by a defensive end who knows what he's doing it, you know you can see that stuff you, oh, you know yeah. through a highlight and and I will say 
part of it to me, I'm sort of the opposite with, and maybe it's now that I'm in the CFL because we have one or two people covering the whole U S so we don't have the resources of 10 or 20 scouts. If I have a kid and a scout says, Hey, you should peek at this kid. The first thing I'll do is go see if I can find a clip because if there's a five minute highlight clip of a receiver and that doesn't impress me enough to make me think he can play in the CFL, (laughs) that's a good point. Then you know what? I'm not going to watch the film. Because if go. the best of your plays ain't good enough, it's time to move on. And I will say, just as you were saying, like, where do you take a gamble? A perfect example, I was at a workout in Indianapolis this past week, and I won't give names of players or whatever, but there was an offensive lineman that showed up that literally looks like what an NFL team would want marching off the bus, first guy off. This is a big, long, linear kid with tremendous athletic ability and feet. But as a player, you watch him, and it's just – he is not as good or even good consistently. Doesn't click. Doesn't click. And it's not that he's not a, a good kid. Like you talk to him, he's a wonderfully nice kid. Now, NFL teams may not have much interest because they can find guys like this anyway. And most guys that I find that are really inconsistent, don't really attack and play aggressively, rarely are successful. But as I was talking to a buddy of mine who's been in the CFL a long time, we both said, hey, all that's true. But there may not be another human being in the whole CFL with just a pure size and talent. So at some point you say, all right, you know what? You get a certain number of players you can bring to training camp, bring them up for three days. And if he's a complete wash, whack him. But if he shows even a little bit, you put him on the PR. Maybe he can develop because we don't get humans like this. (laughs) Whereas the NFL can say, you know what? We have humans like that on every team. Yeah. So there's always a point where you try to figure out where is that line where it's worth taking the gamble, how much you trust the coaches to coach them to improve. There's so many factors, and that's what I think people in the media don't understand is there's so many things that go into it that when people take guys in the first or second round, they completely fail. It's not like they're idiots, and they just randomly threw a dart and said, take this guy. They had reasons for either liking certain traits more or willingness to gamble, knowing that there was a higher risk. There are a lot of things that go into it. Rarely do teams just do awful things in terms of their decision-making process is completely flawed and they screw it up time after time after time. If that's the case, then you can just wipe out everybody in that building. But generally, it's a mistake for a reason. Yeah, yeah. And when they're, and the, the problem is, is that the, those exceptions to what you just said are highlighted again and again the thousands of times until they become tall tales that like it seems like it's the norm um yes but you, you know wrapping up our senior bowl conversation there is a player i kind of want to bring up and ask you some oh questions yeah that's about. right yeah. so there's this kid out of stanford who by the name of michael wilson he's about six one came in at about 212 at the at the senior bowl he played he was listed weight, I think he said, was like in the 200s. 203, um, I think, two, a year ago, yeah. Okay, 203. And, you know, I shared him with my newsletter subscribers, I believe, sometime during the year because I really loved his route running. I thought he might be one of the better route runners of this draft class from what I've seen. And I've watched, you know, I've watched about 40 of the receivers, most of the top Only. names thus far. You know, I've got another 30. I probably got another 30 to go um, that I'll be watching this month before I start the RSP, which, you know, if you want to get the rookie scouting portfolio, it's available for $21.95 at mattwaldman.com. Um, it'll be downloadable April 1st. And then the post draft where I, I rework everything will be available one week after the NFL draft. Again, $21.95 at mattwaldman.com. But, um, Michael Wilson, um, I had comparison spectrums with guys who I saw as kind of those hybrid flanker, big slot men who could play a little bit on the outside as uh, split ends depending on the matchup. And that's Michael Thomas and Juju Smith-Schuster. When I when I watched him and I you know they used him on either side of the formation at Stanford, um, they used him as a split end. Um, he was his route running was very sudden. Um, you could just see with his releases that he understood that dichotomy between patience and um, and suddenness and knew how to exploit that to get free. You could see it on some of his tape at the Senior Bowl. Like I didn't care whether he beat the guy or not, I and mean, he whooped the guys that they showed it on, but it was the 
It was the movement skills. It was the footwork patterns. It was the things that he was doing on film that he showed in practice. And I'm like, yeah, that looks good. Tracks the ball well. Um, you know, maybe I. the only thing I could really see in his game that I really wanted to see better was on certain contested catches um, where I'd like to see him not try and just turn back for the ball, but maybe actually do a full jump back and face the ball and know the difference of when to do that and, and, and to attack. But good in the open field, just like understood how to set up blocks, knew when to split defenders and be physical, um, just had a really good feel for everything. Now, the thing is, is that Elijah Huggins is the player that I think everybody knows from Stanford who's there, who's 6'2", 235 or something along those lines. And Wilson was injured um, and it was undisclosed at that time, you know, that, you know, that it was a, an injury that he had basically from December 21 through October 22 and then missed the rest of the season from the Notre Dame game on. As, as you mentioned to me and you know and I watched the last game I watched of him in 22 was Notre Dame <laughs> so I had watched the the Washington the USC and the Notre Dame games and then I like turned off the tape and said I'll watch more of him later this later on um, <laughs> you know as we go from there well apparently I'm going to be going back into 2021 tape to see more of his game but with a guy like that who's missed a lot of time who's I have to imagine I would bet based on what I've seen on tape, I'd be very surprised if he doesn't repeat day one from the senior bowl in day two and day three, where he starts to get some notice, at least in the media, in terms of what he does. If you get a guy who just looks like a pro on tape, looks like he could be a very good pro, maybe even a starter um, and a good one, but he just doesn't, he wasn't productive at school. And part of it is due to a, a, an injury that took a long time to come back. I mean, a, what's about 11 months, they say. Yeah. So so whatever Which that I got to say, when you hear 11 months in foot, I think of either broken ankle or Liz Frank injury, the two things that jump to my mind. Now, I'm not saying that's what it is, but those are the two things that jump into my mind. Yeah, that's for sure. So that's a, you know, so, you know, the significant injuries there. Do you... You know, I mean, there are how does how do scouts approach players like this who maybe now like you're watching me go the tape they have it looks good the the product the production really isn't there and injury explains some of it but but what do we do with this kid how do we rate him well firstly I'll say and this is something a buddy of mine was told by his boss with the team like 15 years ago and I've always quoted it because I think it makes perfect sense is. When you have a kid with medical stuff, your job as a scout is to put whatever you can find out about his medical to and, and alert the team, hey, this is something we need to research. And at that point, as a scout, just with the medical, this is way above your pay grade. You make sure they know it so that if we like him as a player, we're going to go research it. Because that's where the, the trainers, the medical people have to decide, hey, is this a guy who the injuries are because his body has some issues, whether it's the alignment, or he has a certain joint or whatever it may be, or are these fluke things? A teammate stepped on his foot coming out of the locker room, broke two bones in his foot, a weight fell on his foot, things like that. That's where you leave it to the medical people. They're going to decide if the likelihood or, or of this being sort of a, a thing that bothers them, bothers them throughout his career is going to be legitimate, or do they think this is not a, a big thing? So that's one thing. The other thing where you talk about not having the the sort of the production that's where the analytics really has sort of helped a lot is they can run production they do both they'll do career production charting to say okay players who have started this many games this many catches this many yards how many have achieved those and then gone on to be productive at their position in the nfl that's part of what hurt dk metcalf when he came out and everybody likes oh it was a three cone or a short shuttle that really wasn't the big part of it. The problem was the, the metrics were, I think he had started under 13 or 14 games. He had less than 70 or 80 catches in his career. And I don't think he had 1,000 yards or, or under 2,000 yards, whatever the numbers were. The number of receivers with those metrics who had become productive long-term, not one or two-year starters, was very low, if any. So that's one of the things that the analytics people will be able to help with is, hey, Here's all of, all of his production. You hope then that you can also match that with, hey, we've evaluated the film. 
Here's what we think of him as a player. Our medical people say these are not long-term things. These are fluke things. And he checks out now, especially that injury that cost him basically a year. How is that injury? If all those things check out, then it just becomes a point of where does your organization look at the metrics and say, okay, we're not nervous about the fact that no player with these numbers has ever been productive or whatever it may be. So we're going to try to slot him correctly based on that. Um, it, it's a it's a hard thing, especially the medical side. That's uh, There are certain teams that are much more willing to gamble on that, and other teams are very, very hands-off. They will not touch medical. And a perfect example of why it's so important is there was a kid that came out of uh, Wisconsin, a pass rusher, whose name is slipping my mind right now. But he went in the first round, 16th overall, to the Vikings. Um, a lot of people had him as the fir- the top defense player in the whole draft. Um, Schofield. Nope, no. No, not Schofield. I know who you're talking about, though. Yes. He, uh, uh, hopefully I'll remember it while we're talking about him. But he was a highly regarded guy, went to the combine and failed almost two-thirds of the physicals. And it wasn't due to any prior injury or anything like that. It was his lower body frame, the way his hips and knees were aligned. The medical people came back and said, this kid's body is not going to survive over time. And I want to say about six or eight games into his rookie year, he looked like he was on the verge of really making an impact. And I think he blew a knee out or a hip out. And then when he returned from that, it was the other one that went. And he was literally, I think, out of the league in three or four years. Yeah. Um, so that's where you have to turn it over to the, the, the people that can look at both injury history, skeletal stuff, and say, hey, this is a big risk. Or, hey, he's missed a lot of times, but every time it's been a different injury, and they've been weird, fluky injuries, so we're not worried. So with a guy like him, I would assume if he grades out as, say, a first or a second-round player, and the medical people say, hey, none of these injuries are related. Each one was a separate incident. And there's no reason to believe they're going to be recurring. I would expect he would probably get drafted close to where you grade him. Unless the metrics are so bad that he's only started like nine games, has 38 catches for 700 yards and three touchdowns, then teams might be like, hey, <laughs> yeah. I don't care how well he tested. Those numbers are so down both based on if he was healthy production and the injury factor, we got to be concerned. Because the one thing that is true, and I know I've mentioned before in the podcast, when I first got in the league, all the old gruff scouts used to give me the line of, if he was hurt in college, he'll be hurt in the pros. Well, analytics has even doubled up on that. Because all the indicators say, you miss this many games in college, you're going to be injury prone. You miss this many, you're going to be basically done in professional football. So those things are important. And you have to have, a, for a guy like this, you have to check a lot of boxes and make sure they're all good to feel comfortable taking them where his actual film grade probably would indicate you should. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, because when you look at this guy's career, he played five years because he, he took the COVID year. The COVID year, yeah. yeah. So, so in 2018, he arrived. He only, you know, he didn't play much. It looks like 14 for 126, averaged about nine yards a catch, had a touchdown. And then in 2019, he had 56 catches for 672 yards, averaged 12 a catch, and had five touchdowns. Um, and then 2020, it dropped. 19 catches, 261 yards, and a touchdown, averaging 13 a, 13.7. And then 21 is when he got hurt at the end of the season, but he only had 19 catches for 185 yards and no touchdowns. Averaging 9.7. And then this year, he only played a certain number of games, a small number of games. He had 26 catches for 418 yards, 16.1 yard a catch, and four touchdowns, and but was hurt. You know, didn't play till October, was was basically done three months ago. Um, yeah, exactly. So he played a month, month and a half, you know. Yeah, I mean, it. now the good thing is he's over most of the minimums. I think the minimums, and I, it's been a while since I looked, but I, I think there's 60 or 70 for catches. I think it's 800 or 1,000 yards career um, and under 10 touchdowns, something like that. He's over that, but I will say, teams are going to look at it and say, why was your best year four years ago? Yeah. Well, like, what is that, and why were you not playing up to your talent level? And 
And and it really just comes down. I mean, he's been on the field playing for parts of five years, but teams are going to want to find out why was his best year four years ago, and where is he in terms of medical? Is this a lingering thing? Because you have two straight years of nineteen catches. Is he going to be a guy that can be productive and be healthy? And that's, I think, the biggest concern that you're going to have. Yeah, without a doubt, you know. And so, I mean, I think it's one of those things that, you know, for someone like me, when I'm studying him and not knowing, not being able to have those conversations, he's the type of guy that I, you know, I'll grade the film grade and say, here's where he ranks based on his skills on the field. But here's the things off, here's the things with the injury that, you know, present the risk. So really, if you're, you know, from a from a standpoint of what my audience is about, if you're thinking about picking them in a fantasy league, really, you want to wait as long as you possibly can to get him and see where his draft capital is and, and just really not even have him on your board until you get to a draft capital point where you're going, I'm cutting most of these guys anyway. Um, you know, I, anybody after the fourth round, I'm probably not going to have in my drafts. Anyhow, so, you know, this is the time that you take the chance on a guy like that, even if I have him as a first or second round talent. So I think I mean, to me, he screams out he's going to be taken by Jacksonville because Trent Baalke has a history of taking injured players or he's going to be taken by the 49ers because they keep accumulating so many extra third round picks because of the minority hiring rules that and they're so good and they're there. There's no team that's going to have a better tie in the Stanford than the 49 true so they'll know everything about him and with all their extra picks if this kid somehow makes it to the third and they're sitting there saying oh the med- the medical is an issue that we'll roll the dice because we have three threes and we're coming off an nfc championship game we're not going to get fired in the next two years even if we win two games a year let's roll the dice we might get a superstar right yeah those are great points and you have established guys in front of them you know, yes. you're not not leaning on them with Ayuk and 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 Debo in the, in the fold right now. So that makes perfect sense. So let's round the show out with a a little bit of a conversation of with Brady being gone. Um, who benefits from the fact that Brady's retired? I mean, we've got a whole list of guys, but I know that the, I, I know you've you've talked about some of them. Who who do you think really benefits with Brady? Just you know, now going to go to Fox or whatever he's going to do. Well, firstly, I exclude Lamar from this because I don't think the team that was going to go pursue Brady was probably going to pursue Lamar because <laughs> right. it's very different offenses. I, I don't know if you're going to go from a very traditional pocket offense to a more sort of Josh Allen type offense just because Brady retired. So Lamar is going to get paid regardless. But to me, three players in particular really benefit. Two were Daniel Jones and Geno Smith. Because prior to this, both of those teams could have used a little leverage and said, well, we're going to go into free agency. We're going to look at Tom Brady. We may look at Carr. There's going to be Baker Mayfield. There's going to be Garoppolo. Well, Brady was the only one that they both would look at and say, yeah, that guy's better than me. The other ones, they may have intrinsically said, oh, I'm better than him or whatever. Well, now they can go, yeah, go ahead. Go get Mayfield. Go get- I know I'm better. So I think both Daniel Jones and Geno Smith feel a lot better today that they're going to get paid. Additionally, I think Carr wakes up thinking, this is awesome, because even though he's technically not a free agent and the Raiders may try to squat on him and force other teams to sign quarterbacks, so there's only one team left that has to trade, it puts him in a position where, hey, if you, you know there all these agents talk. He's going to find out how many teams have him the guy they want. Because now it's not do you pursue Brady and then maybe consider Carr, maybe consider Garoppolo or Daniel Jones, whatever it may be. It's Now it's, to me, there's Carr and everybody else. Because Daniel Jones, whether you like him as much as Carr or not, the Giants have the control too. Yeah. And he's not going anywhere at all. They're not going to risk yeah, I think all. I think Daniel Jones would be an absolute fool too to like yes. not stay with the Giants. After... It would be idiotic on both sides. Yes, Yes. Yeah. So because that... he finally started playing well, and they've got a guy that's young that wants to be there, that has all the physical tools in the world. So why wouldn't you make that work? Whereas Carr clearly is not going to be in Oakland next year unless they get really stubborn and say we're not going to let you go where you want to go. And he says, "Okay, 
I'm not going to let you trade me because I have the right to refuse it. I'll sit on your bench all year and you have to pay me $40 million. Yeah. So to me, he's the guy that benefits because either he's going to force them to keep him for $40 million, he's going to force a trade to exactly where he wants to go, or he's going to force him to cut him. But he, to me, has leverage now because any team that was thinking about talking about Brady, that's gone. Yeah. And I don't think Jones is in the mix. And to me, whether you love Mayfield, you love Garoppolo or Geno, to me, none of them are at Carr's level at this point. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fascinating conversation that we're going to have ahead, especially we'll we'll save our Lamar Jackson com- topic for yes, the, next the, time a couple we'll talk of weeks because we'll get into depth, talk a little bit about maybe about Aaron Rodgers, if he's in, you know, where he might end up being as if he's a factor in all of this as well. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about um, the combine coming up at that point too. We can we can kind of do a little bit of a preview of, of those conversations. And as always, you know, you can find Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Matt Waldman as well on the same site. And again, rookie scouting portfolio available for twenty one ninety five at mattwaldman.com. You can pre-order it right now. And, you know, as always, this is a great conversation. Always look forward to getting a chance to, to chop it up with Russ. And hopefully you guys enjoyed it as well. You can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, um, you, you know, you can even just go to my site, mattwaldmanrsp.com, and you can find them there and you can play, them, uh, you know, on the player there. Thanks again. Have a good week.